You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who so that you don't have to. Hi, I'm JR. And I'm Simon. And that was, again, our brand new theme tune, uh, which was arranged for us by Stuart Michel, who records as we, as we, as Who Are The Monsters. So if you want to hear more in a similar vein, Google Who Are The Monsters people, because, well, I think that's excellent, and it's well worth checking out more, don't you think, Simon? It's lovely. It's um, It's very fresh. It's it's kind of oh it's kind of got a bit of a modern sort of backdrop and then it's got a real lovely fifties feel to the theme. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you and I have got a lot to talk about tonight. Mm. So I think the first thing we should do is Knox Box. Okay. Okay. You ready for this? Yep. Three, two, one. Knox, Knox Box. Box. That's not the best we've ever done it, is it? Oh, I was trying to harmonise. Okay, fair enough. Um, <laughs> I tell you what, Grant, Grant Knock, who writes the Knox box uh, things for us, mm. uh, he said something on Twitter that I wanted to repeat, so I didn't bother to ask his permission. I'm just going to say it. What do you think? Is that fair? Or yeah. not fair? I think it's fair. No. He said... Yeah. He said, now that I've listened to the most recent Blue Box podcast, I'm wondering if I should change my Twitter bio to Blue Box Podcasts Man on the Ground, rewatching the Stephen Moffat era so that you don't have to. <laughs> hey. Anyway, yeah. he watched three stories this week uh, from Series 6. He's plowing through Series 6 at the moment. He watched Night Terrors, about which he said, Still don't know if I like this one. There are a few mm-hmm. good bits, but I'm not a big fan of Love Conquers All endings. The little kid's quite good, though. And on mm. the subject of The Girl Who Waited, he said the idea mm. of this episode is brilliant. Unfortunately, it does nothing for me as I feel no empathy towards Amy because she's such a surly cow. <laughs> I feel really disconnected from this story and after the last three stories, the series. However... He then managed to get the God Complex in as well. And his response to that was, Excellent. Just what I needed. The direction is superb, the supporting cast are all excellent, and the Minotaur is beautifully realised. Also think this would have been a lovely point at which to leave the ponds. Hmm. So that was week nine of Knock's Box from Grant Knock, who is Cult of Morbius on Twitter. And you can hear some more of his thoughts about Doctor Who on there. Um, well, we should sing our way back out of it. You ready? Yep. Okay, here we go. Box knocks. And I suppose next week, chances are we'll find out what he thinks of Closing Time and the Wedding of River Song. Ooh. Which, of course, as you know, and I expect a lot of people do, is one of my favourite episodes. Mm. So I'm actually dreading to see what he thinks of that because I have a horrible feeling he's going to hate it. Uh, uh, no, no, he's been, he's been, um, 
sort of, I'd say, about 75% positive, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, but he didn't like Let's Kill Hitler. Oh, he didn't? Mm. No, no. And... He didn't, and he didn't like The Girl Who Waited, but then I kind of appreciate where he's coming from with that. Yeah. I, he did actually say to me afterwards, I, he may watch it again just to see if it changes again, but mm. I don't think it will. If you can't get on with Amy, you're not going to get on with this story at which she's front and centre, are you? No, but having said that, that story is, it kind of breeds empathy for her. You kind of understand her a bit more. I you, mean, she is kind of damaged goods, isn't she? Yeah, you do. But I think if you're not going to like that character, you know, if you're never going to like that character, you're never going to like the story. Mm, really mm. and the reason of course i brought up let's kill hitler is because wedding of river song is probably closer to let's kill hitler in its sort of tone and it, i think if you don't get on with let's kill hitler you're really not going to get on with <laughs> yeah i think the word is manic mm. he said um last week he said um it's like a child screaming look at me look at what i can do and it, uh, the wedding of river song is just that squared really isn't it uh, yeah, with a more, yeah, Aye. yeah, and it's that's free for all, isn't it? Yeah, that's what I loved about it. But I guess if you're not going to enjoy that kind of Doctor Who, you're not going to enjoy that kind of Doctor Who, and it's no. as simple as that. Still, you never know. Maybe he'll surprise us. He won't mm. listen to this till after he's seen the story, so I'm not going to affect his judgment on them by saying this now. Mm. Mm. It's funny because he's touched on a couple of subjects of what we're going to be talking about, isn't he? in a couple of those but we'll come back to that in just a, about two minutes because we've got one mm. email this week so i think we'll do the email now and then we can just plow into tonight's tonight's topic and it's from weird bean he says hello blue boxers first of all congratulations just listened to the hundredth podcast and loved it as ever a few things chimed with me when listening now, since 23rd of November, I've been doing something very original. I've been watching my way through all of classic Doctor Who. Yes, I bet no one else has thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> I just so happened, he continues, to be at Series 19 and on time flight just before hearing Lee's judgment on it. Like each of you, I always look for the positives in Doctor Who, but Lee, you are quite right. Time shite. Still... It is Doctor Who, so I cherished every awful moment of it. <laughs> On the subject of music, it's funny, but describing the music as textures made me think one thing. Is beige a texture? If so, <laughs> it might describe most of the 1980s incidental music. Yeah. Mrs. Bean, he carries on to say, has been less enthusiastic in my rewatching, but fortunately, she likes a good read. That sounds like Mrs. Cockrum, if you ask me. Mm. Unfortunately, says Weird Bean, she has concluded that the original series is just full of silly, beepy sound effects. To be fair, she made that comment while I was watching the War Games, and then again while watching the Sea Devils, at which point I had to explain it was the music and not a sound effect. <laughs> well, we'll always have new Who. And whilst I'm writing, I just wanted to say I loved the quiz, although JR, you are a cruel quiz master. Also, it made me shout Paradise Towers in the middle of the street, which was liberating and embarrassing. Anyway, keep up the grand work, guys. Weird bean. You know, I'd love to hear um, how people listen to the podcast. Do they? I know you, you listen to someone headphones, don't you, while you're doing your post round? Yeah, that's what I do while I'm doing the round. A lot of people yeah. listen while driving and 
of the listen while jogging. I don't know. And Who so, knows? Some people actually, as soon as they download it, I think they just put it on straight away, regardless mm. of what they're doing. Mm. I wonder if some people uh, put it on while they're pummeling a... <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> one, of those, one of those punchy things. What are they called? Uh, punch bag? That's the one. <laughs> punchy thing. <laughs> oh, it could well be. Well, imagine yeah. in Lee's face on the punch bag. Yeah, it could be. Could be. I it's think... possible. Possible, more than likely, I'd say. <laughs> Following your example. Well, it's all right. He never listens to the podcast, so he won't be able to hear me say it. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> so cruel. Simon, yes. uh, oh, I've got a bit of a quote here, and that is going to introduce tonight's topic. Do, mm. You don't have it all queued up in front of you, do you? Do you know what quote I'm talking about? No, I don't. Oh, in that case, I'll say it, and because I've got my list in front of me. My mm. entire notes which comprises a list, and I've made damn sure this week... Oh, you've not heard last week's podcast yet? Uh, not all the way through, no, I got interrupted. I've made damn sure this week not to put any titles in the wrong column. Oh. <laughs> last week, <laughs> I put one of the... Uh, we only had two columns, and there was only about four stories in each, and I put one of the stories in the wrong column and spent about half an hour talking about the wrong story. <laughs> it was very sad. Okay, the quote that's going to introduce tonight's podcast comes from Night Terrors, funnily enough, given what we've mm. just heard from Grant. Yeah. And the quote is thus. Today, we're answering a cry for help from the scariest place in the universe, a child's bedroom. Simon, what are we going to be... Because I'm about to take a swig of tea. What are we going to be talking mm. about tonight? Children in Doctor Who. And when you say children in Doctor Who, mm. we're not we're not going to be going through every story that's ever had children in it. No, no. And we're not going to be dwelling on the story, because we've got a list in front of us that comprises something in the region of 20 stories, which is a lot to get through. In fact, mm. nearer 30, actually, looking at it. So we're not <laughs> going to dwell on all of those stories too much. But what we want mm. to do, really, is... Well, what we usually do, which is to discuss how and why the writer has used the child in the story and whether he's been successful at doing so. And, mm. of course, what we're really going to be looking at is mostly new Who, and for several reasons, one of which would be just logistically, in the classic series, it was almost impossible to do stories with children because of the way the program was made. Hmm. You had, I, I mean, each episode, when it was black and white, and then when it was colour, they mixed it up a bit, but it was generally the same sort of system. You had a week's worth of rehearsals, which was pretty much nine to five all week, and then on a Friday night or a Saturday night at the weekend, you recorded the episode in the evening, starting at half past seven or thereabouts, and finishing at ten o'clock or thereabouts. Hmm. Now there are laws governing the way you can use children, you know, mm. how much, in terms of hours, children are allowed to put in. So the classic series, just by way of its logistics, you weren't able to use children. Mm, hence Caroline Ford. Yeah, who obviously was, oh, I don't know her exact age, I think she was something like 21 or 22 when she played Susan. Mm. And, of course, she's playing a sort of 15, 16-year-old. I don't think it's ever spelled out how old she is. I think she was... I think she was generally regarded as being 15 at the start and 16 at the end, or oh, thereabouts. Okay. Mm. 
But that does nicely bring up the topic in that An Unearthly Child is where we're going to start the journey. Mm -hmm. Because Doctor Who, when it was first broadcast, when it was first planned, when it was first written, when it was being thought up, it was for children. There's no two ways about it. And yes, it's a, you know, we always say this, it's a family show, a children's show. And I always say, the thing is, even if you want to regard it as a family show, you have to allow for the fact that it must appeal to children, no matter who else it appeals to. And right back at the very start, the thing that they started off with was the idea that it was something for children in between the football results and, you know, whatever came on afterwards, jukebox jury or whatever, something for the... Mm dads something for the kids and then something for the teens bbc doing its you know charter duty and broadcasting something for everybody on a saturday night and now here's the thing this is something you may or may not have read but it's kind of a truism Mm. when you're writing for children whether it be a book or a tv series a film whatever Whatever the age of the children that you're attempting to appeal to, two things. One, generally speaking, you will put in there an identification figure for them because if you want a child to engage with your story, you really have to engage the child by appealing to them as if they could be a part of the story. You know, mm. Especially, mm. With a, especially with children, even more so than adults, chil- mm. it's easier to get children to engage with your story if they can place themselves within it, right? Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is, if you're going to give them an identification figure, you also have to make that an aspirational figure, someone that they would aspire to be rather than somebody that they would maybe look down upon or even maybe even see as an equal. Mm. Because, you know, if you want to... If you want to get the child, the reader, to feel as if they would want to be in your story, the character that they identify identify with has to be somebody that they might feel they would want to be. So it has to be an aspirational figure. And generally speaking, an aspirational figure could be aspirational because of the fact that they're heroic in the story, but a very simple shortcut to being an aspirational figure is just to make the child in the story slightly older than the age of the children that you're appealing to as a readership. Mm. For example, if you're trying to appeal to the sort of 8 to 10s audience, your hero in your story would be 12. Mm. Somebody that they could possibly see themselves or maybe hope to see themselves as being in a couple of years' time. Obviously, Mm. they're not going to realise that's what they're doing, but, you know, that's how it works. It's quite subtle, it's sort of a subtextual thing but you Mm. give them somebody a couple of years older that they can aspire to be and when you know everybody sat down Sidney Newman and all the others and looked at what they were going to do with Doctor Who they decided to put a 15 year old girl right at the heart of the very first episode and the first story as the identification figure for children tuning in to engage themselves into the story with. Mm-hmm. So you've got mm-hmm. Susan Foreman in An Unearthly <clears throat> Child. Now, yep. Simon, yep. I realise I've been monologuing and I've no, been getting and years, 
But I mean, okay then. An Unearthly Child, just that first episode, because we all know it went tits up after that. But in terms of that first episode, I mean, do you feel that works? Do you feel that the character Caroline Ford plays as a, let's say, 15-year-old, works as an identification figure for the children watching? And I'll tell you exactly why I'm asking it in just a second. Hmm, but- I do, I do think it does. I mean, certainly as an entry point for the series it's interesting you say that um because in the back of my mind all i can think is why don't you why don't you why don't you i hated why don't you when i was a kid and i realized now it was because i was it was when i got to an age where i was slightly older than the ones on it Mm. and i couldn't stand these kids that were younger than me being precocious and trying to act older than me and whisper it do but that's perhaps why a lot of people are having trouble with doctor who at the moment yeah yeah quite possibly because we all grew up with doctors who were older than we are. It's a bit weird to see one who's younger. Yeah, yeah. But, but And again, it's the same old thing. Credit to Matt Smith because he gets over that. He kind, kind of becomes ageless. But anyway, that's a different mm. different podcast. But the, um, go on. But I, I do think, well, I think in theory, obviously I don't know because I wasn't there. And, and it obviously yeah. worked because it, 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 it caught the imagination of, of people. Um, it did. Shall I get to the reason why I brought it up? Go on then. Because as an identification figure, she's an alien from outer space. <laughs> now, of course, yeah. this isn't spelled out in the story. So, uh, I mean, it, it's spelled out in the story that she's from somewhere else, another time and another place. But it's not spelled out that she's an alien from outer space. But that's a bit of a rug to pull from under your audience halfway through the episode to find out this girl who has been built up as being slightly odd but nothing remotely untoward before this point but by the end of the episode she's an alien from outer space in league with another alien from outer space this rather surly old man and they kidnap two teachers (laughs) but that's the great thing because Well, two great things. Because as any child watching would know, as a child, the people that you're surrounded with, most of the time, I mean, you have your friends, but the people you're surrounded with more time than that are your parents and teachers and Mm. older figures who you're always going to feel slightly alienated from in terms of age and experience and maturity. Mm, mm. So by putting the child in the program in your very first episode, by making her odd and alien, what you're almost doing is saying to the children watching, yeah, it's okay to feel slightly alienated from the people around you. Yeah, I was going to say. And, yeah. he, and, here's, and here's somebody who's the hero of a television program who's exactly that. Is, do you know what I said a few weeks ago about um, the brilliant thing about the sort of Hinchcliffe Holmes era was that they were making mm. grown-up horror films for kids, which mm. as a child watching kind of, kind of gives you a little frisson of this is something I'm not really supposed to be able to see, and yet yeah. here I am and I'm able to watch it. Yeah, It's kind of the same thing in An Earthly Child. <clears throat> You've kind of got a situation where for once and, you know, this happens so infrequently, especially back in those days. It, it has become a little bit of a general running theme in modern television. But back in those days, it was incredibly rare to see something. I think it was incredibly rare to see something 
where they actually appeal to the sort of rebellious part of your nature as a child, rebelling against the authority figures around you. Mm, mm. I was going to say, it's, it's the whole Harry Potter thing, isn't it? It's that yeah. child under the stairs, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In a kind of, and of course these days you get quite a few programs that are kind of appealing to children in that fashion, particularly older children as well. But back then I don't think it was anything like as common. And then no. of course the great thing at the end is they kidnap the teachers. <laughs> which is yeah who's the one yeah who are the one people you wouldn't want to go if you're going to get lost well yeah when you you want you'd want your mum and dad there not not your cheat well of course you? there's two things about that yeah you wouldn't want the teachers there because they would be always cramping your style but then the other thing is because at the end of that first episode it does seem to be that the doctor and by association susan are at this point in the story the villains of the piece so the villains of the piece kidnapping the teachers is almost like another nudge and a wink to the children watching in the audience, the slightly older <laughs> ones probably in this instance, mm. who mm. are perhaps feeling a bit rebellious towards authority figures in that way, that, mm. hey, here's a television programme, the likes of which you shouldn't really be watching again. <laughs> and this is how wild we can make it, that we can mm. have the kidnapping of two teachers as a central platform of our first story. Mm, mm. That is, An Unearthly Child is such a brilliant episode in so many ways. And of course, as as we all know, that uh, that sort of element of the story all goes rather sour thereafter. Mm, mm. It, is, it shouldn't work. On paper, it shouldn't work, but it does work. I mean, a few years later, I suppose a teacher would be painted as almost like an anti-hero really as far as children are concerned yeah especially given you sort of different ages that you're trying to appeal to because like i say with an unearthly child it kind of appeals to the two sort of different ages of childhood on those two different levels mm. because i suppose let's say your audience is able to comprehend the story by about the age of maybe seven or eight and for the seven to 12-year-olds, you have Susan being this slightly different person, which kind of makes her feel right as an identification figure for you, because, you know, as a 7 to 12-year-old, you do get to go out and play with your friends, but not nearly as much as you do when you're an older child and you can go out on your own. So mm. most of the time you are surrounded by teachers and parents and parents' friends and, you know... If you're off to be looked after while your parents are at work, the people at the nursery and all these all these people that you will know by the time you're sort of between that seven and twelve, and it's kind of Susan is rebellious against that side of things, and then mm. for the older child, you've got the the whole kidnapping of the teachers thing, which is kind of a mm. you know it's kind of a bit of a giggle for them in a way mm. absolutely. Shall we uh, move on to our next story? Because the entire yeah. classic series... Okay, I didn't go through story by story and look in depth at each one and try and remember whether there were children involved, but the one mm. that really sticks out, and like I say, we're mostly going to be talking about the new series now, the one that most sticks out is... Go on, it's for you, Simon. Name the story. What, of the new series? No, 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 the old series. The other story in the old series we're talking about. Oh! Oh, the I Twin can't... Dilemma. Twin Dilemma. Oh, right. Okay. Yes. Oh, yeah. Well, yes. yeah, but 
okay. When we do these podcasts, we tend to say, why has the writer done what he's done? Mm. And was it written successfully and then realized successfully in the production? Mm. And, okay, in the case of The Twin Dilemma, he writes a story where the reason you've got the kids in it, and the kids, these kids have been played by teenagers, which mm. is, you know, how they're able to have the two kids in, probably playing slightly younger than they really are. Why is the writer put children in the story? And in mm. the case of The Twin Dilemma, he's put kids in the story because, and we'll come back to this when we do the new series and we talk about School Reunion, the theme of the story that the children are involved in is solving something. And the mm. reason it has to be children is because this is a problem that can't be solved by a cynical brain. Mm. A mm. similar idea to In Destiny of the Daleks where you've yeah. got two logical forces fighting against each other and you need to introduce irrationality into the equation in order to come up with a, a victor. Mm, mm. Twin Dilemma kind of, that part of the story is hooked on that same sort of thing. You need an uncynical mind in order to solve the problem. So he writes a story in which these two children, who are mass geniuses, rather like somebody else we've had not too far recently from <laughs> Twin Dilemma, Maths yeah. geniuses, uncynical brains, utter geeks as well, entirely mm. focused on the problem, uh, the exclusion of understanding why it might not necessarily be a good thing to solve it. And I think, in spite of the obvious problems with the story that is the twin dilemma, I mm. think the inclusion of the twins in the story is one of the least problematic things of it in, the, in, in terms of the writing. Mm, I no, think it's 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 um it's a decent it, idea. Yeah, I know absolutely and it's one that it's an age-old thing is that you'll see in particularly in sci-fi right through the years is this this idea and it and it and it and it relates to storytelling in itself the innocence and the acceptance of the fantastic and looking beyond the limits you know it's integral to sci-fi and they they do come back to it as a device, don't they? Quite a lot in in all manner of TV and film, where children are used as this example of how when you're younger the the mind is more flexible and more and, open things. Yeah, to things. Yeah, yeah. So in that in that respect, it is it's quite clever. It's a shame that it's so two dimensional. And maybe if yeah. they came back to it in in the new series they could use it in the way that it was probably meant to be. Well this is the well they did. School reunion comes back to pretty of much course the same did, idea. Yeah. 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 Um and could and we use that as a bridge because school reunion is the first one we'll talk about in the new series. I was just gonna say one more thing about the twin dilemma. Mm. And then I was gonna say something about the idea of children in Doctor Who in general. Mm. And then but instead of just saying what I'm going to say, I'll just say it, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the point with yep. Twin Dilemma Round is... The, block. <clears throat> yep. the Anthony Stephen, who writes The Twin Dilemma, I don't think he's up to speed with what modern Doctor Who's been doing since about season 18, where the stories have, you know, moved into the age, as it were. Old Doctor Who, especially in the 60s, but also in the 1970s, was a pretty simple series telling pretty simple stories and I've said this before you can put in complicated character motivations and plenty of subtext and subplot to flesh it out and make it into an interesting story 
But actually, the stories you're telling are pretty simple. Mm. Aliens turn up. Aliens want to take over. The Doctor stops them. That's not all the stories, but you know what I mean? It's pretty simple. And in the case of The Twin Dilemma, Anthony Stephen, and this is my excuse for it not working. That's basically what I'm getting to here. Or the reason for it not working, I think, but some people will see it as just an excuse. Point I'm making is, Twin Dilemma, he's written a pretty old-fashioned story. Script editor Eric Sayward has tried to modern it up. And somewhere in between the old-fashioned story that Anthony Stephen kind of mistakenly wrote and th- wrote thinking he was writing Doctor Who the way he remembered it to be, and the story that Eric Sayward wanted, but probably didn't get the chance to fully develop, considering he was probably, you know, extremely busy with all sorts of other things. Somewhere in between the two, Twin Dilemma kind of falls through the cracks. It's neither one thing nor the other. And then, of course, the in terms of the actual twins, that's kind of the reason why the characters aren't as developed as they should be. If it had been a really old-fashioned story, you wouldn't have needed to develop the characters. The archetypes would have been enough. But Eric Sayward wanted a more modern type of story where you have proper character motivations. And so somewhere in between those two stools, the twins kind of fall through the crack and they're neither one thing nor the other. And then when it comes to the production, you've written this story and it is at this stage too late to do this massive a rewrite to get rid of these Mm. two characters but an inherent part of the story is these two twins you know in their early teens so you have to find somebody to cast in their early teens this is you know not the modern age where you've got internet and at the finger access to files of you know show reels and stuff of of these actors showing what they can do Mm. and Mm. you know these days you can try people out before you even really meet them. Mm. In the old days, yes, they probably also had showreels, but it was so much slower a process that once they'd got the twins in the studio and perhaps realised that it wasn't working out quite as well as they maybe wanted it to, it was too late. Mm. And don't get me wrong, I am not criticising the two boys who played those two roles. Mm. I don't think... I don't think it's a nightmarish performance from the two of them, but it's just obviously (laughs) not working within the context of the production, and it was too late to change it, and so Mm. the production suffers from all these sorts of elements coming together at the same... It it was just... It was a flawed thing to attempt Mm. to make this story, but once you've started down that road, you just have to carry it through to the bitter end, because Mm. there isn't by that point, any alternative. It's funny as well how the production at that time seems to miss the obvious, the obvious thing, and we've we've discussed this on a different podcast, that, you know, this is Colin Baker's, you know, his 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 premiere. This is his first story. This should be something really, really special. And, and it might, might seem like a really clever idea to stick his story at the end of a season. But... <laughs> Not thinking about the fact that at the end of the season, stories tend to suffer. You know, Time Flight is an example. Yeah, and not Um, just because the sort of budget's running low by this point and the production team's getting tired by this point, but also, you know, by the time you get to the seventh story in a season, your writer, 
your script editor, the person who's required to sort of make sure the scripts are up to scratch, it's not the fact that he's tired. It's the fact that he has had six other stories to work on. You know, mm. when you're doing the first story, you've had no other stories to work on, so you can give it to your full attention. But by the time you get to the seventh story, and you're still working on all those other six stories that come before, through various points at which the seventh story would be being written, it doesn't have anything like the amount of attention that it needs to get to be as good as it can be. So by, mm. so by giving Colin Baker a seventh story in a season as his debut, you're kind of all automatically stuffing it, poor fella. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's something that, we, that I think the new series has learnt, and it certainly, it's got a certain luxury in order that they they can allow a story, an in, individual story, to be what it wants to be. If that story, yeah. if the Twin Deliver, had, 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 as you say, had carried on and been the simple story... Um, almost fairy tale like uh, in the way that it was probably written, as you say, it, it would have been a different animal, and it may be seen as a little gem now. I don't know. I don't know. But, but if if you spend your time, uh, I suppose, trying to apply some kind of control over it, which I guess Eric Sayward did, but as you say, didn't have the time to do properly. No. Then all you're going to do is clip it, clip its wings, and as you say, it falls between the two stools, doesn't it? It's, it's one of those stories when I look at it and I think about what's in it. A pair of twins solving a maths problem, and their old professor, played by such a brilliant actor, and mm. the idea of this slug creature trying to, <clears throat> you know, um, cause this uh, explosion to send his um, eggs out across the universe so he can conquer the galaxy that way. I think about it like that, and I'm thinking, this has all the elements. Oh, yeah. and the, the space detective as well. I'm thinking, yeah. this has all the elements to be something utterly wonderful and yeah, fun. Yeah. Absolutely, all the elements are fantastic. You know, yeah, the old Time Lord who's mm. reaching the end of his regenerations. I mean, you see that mentioned in one of the new stories, and you think, that's really exciting. Yeah, and yeah, when it came down to it, something about the production just entirely missed the mark and it was oh it was Morris Denham I was trying to call up the actor's name of course it was yeah yeah. Uh, and it just kind of misses the mark but we're not here to review The Twin Dilemma what we're here to do is talk about children in Doctor Who ostensibly a children's series mm. I've got a question for you Simon oh dear okay I'm putting you on the spot here but <laughs> not on the spot in the old no. term on the old <laughs> sense of the term I want you to name me three children's stories, three classic children's stories. Things okay. like, off the top of my head, I'll come up with Alice in Wonderland, uh, The Railway Children, mm. and Five Children in It. I don't oh, know. Just off the that, top of my head. You name yeah, you three just, now. You, you just named Five Children in It, I was going to say. Um, uh, okay, Never Ending Story, um, Lion the Witch in the Wardrobe, and, oh, what's another one? doesn't That's really matter. We've come up with five. That's enough. I just yeah. wanted to illustrate a point. Yeah. And my point would be thus. What is the one thing that all those stories have got in common? Group of children? Yeah. They're all children's stories in which mm. the main characters, the protagonists, are children. Yeah. Try and think of an example now of a children's story without children in as the main protagonists. Mm. There, are, there are there yeah. are um, yeah. you look at Philip Pullman's stories 
So what, you know, oh, what, the ruby and the smoke and things like and that, and the golden compass and things like that. Oh no, they are children. So there are. I mean, uh, is there? Oh, I'm th- golden compass. I've not seen or read it, but I was. Oh, Lyra, is she's. Oh, she's, there is a child in it. Yes, of course there is. Yeah, but she's of. Um, the whole story is to do with her moving from child to adult, though. Mm. So yeah, she's but, on but, the cusp. Uh, I'm sure there are children's stories in which mm. the protagonists are not children but adults. I mean, mm. off the top of my head, I can think of some, but I'm not going to bring them up. Because the point I was trying to make was, it is, by and large, just the normal thing to do in a children's story to make your central protagonist a child. Mm. Now, Doctor Who ran for 26 years. <laughs> and, well, you know exactly what I'm going to say here, don't, yeah, don't you? Yeah. Ran for 26 years... And for the entire 26-year run, unless you are going to count Susan right back at the start, but for the entire 26-year run, it did not have children as the central protagonists. No. And by the nature of its production, it couldn't do. Mm. Mm. And by the nature of its production these days, in which everybody's working an 11-day fortnight... And you've got night filming and location filming and long days. By the nature of its production, you couldn't do that now. But what you can do is write individual stories in which a child becomes, you know, your main guest character or Mm. one of your main guest characters. And so what I'm saying here is that over the past eight years since the series came back, Gosh, nine years now, actually, since the series came back. Mm. Over the past nine years, there has been an increasing tendency towards having children as central characters in the stories. Mm. Not so much when it came back, because when it came back with Russell T. Davis, I think he always had a bigger eye on what the classic series template was. Mm. I think that's... I think. I think in a lot of ways, Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who is a bit more like the classic series than Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who was. But by the same token, I also think Stephen Moffat plays with the format a lot more than Russell T. Davis was ever tempted to do. So in the four series and a bit that Russell T. Davis did, there are not many examples of stories with children as the main, among the main guest cast. Now, there are, three examples that I'm going to leave to the end Mm. because they're going to lead into the second part of this discussion about the new series. But let's go through some of the stories and let's be fairly brief because when we're doing the Russell T. Davis thing, what we're talking about really is almost tokenism. I was going to make this point later on, but I suppose it might be a good intro to it. that In in essence, RCD... Uh, he compartmentalised Doctor Who by doing the Sarah Jane adventures, though. He kind of sidestepped and shifted the kids over to that side, though, didn't he? That's true. In a way, he did do that, yes. Mm. But obviously, he didn't do that from the start. No, no. What was it about the second series onwards, was it? Uh, No, that was after the third series, because Sarah Jane didn't turn up until... Sarah Jane didn't turn up until the second series, and of course, Sarah Jane adventures didn't come around... Till I think the 60-minute pilot was between series two and three. And then the first series of Sarah Jane was after series three, I believe, if I'm remembering mm. rightly. No, it sounds about right. The point is kind of 
In the first series with Russell T. Davis with Christopher Eccleston, it was all stories about adults and involving adults. Mm. And you sort of gradually... I called it tokenism just now when I first brought the point up. It's not this, It kind of feels like tokenism because it feels like every now and again you're having a story excuse me, with a child as a central character. Mm. School reunion being the first one that really does that. We'll talk about The Empty Child in a minute. I'm saving mm. the three Stephen okay. Moffat stories for uh, in a few minutes' time. But School Reunion is mm. the first one that really does that, which has children in fairly central roles. Mm. But, I mean, if you look at School Reunion, even though it's set in a school, and even though it has two or three children who are characters throughout the story, none of them really are characterised terribly well. You get to the end of the story and it's been about the Doctor and Sarah Jane and your guest characters who've had very much of an impression at all is, uh, you know, Anthony Head. Mm. The children in it are pretty forgettable, really. Mm. Uh, yeah. which I'm not saying is a problem with the story. I'm just saying it's the first example of us using children heavily in the new series, and they're really in the background. They're a backdrop to the story to take Oh, place. they are. They're almost part of the scenery, really. Mm, it's exactly. set in a school, and what goes with a school? Children. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't have the story without the children, but let's be honest, if the children weren't in it, it wouldn't affect the story very much. Apart no. from, takes a swig of water... <laughs> Apart from the conceit, as in the twin dilemma, where yep. it's the children who facilitate the plot, basically. Yep. Yep. Mm. But, I mean, the difference between those two stories is, in twin dilemma, the twins are right at the heart of it. In school reunion, they're really not. Mm. On, do you think? Do you think uh, Russell T. Davis had some kind of idea in the back of his head about Sarah Jane? Because it, it's almost a template for the Sarah Jane adventures, isn't it? I don't think he did. I mean, it's possible he may have. I really don't think he did. I think he's. I think he literally wanted to do a story like School Reunion. I don't. I'm not sure whether School Reunion came out of the idea that he wanted to have Sarah Jane in it. Or the inclusion of Sarah Jane came out of the idea that he wanted to have a story in which Rose would be able to see, you know, what it's like to be the ex-companion. Mm, yeah. But either way, he wanted to have a story like that in his second series. And he does have Sarah Jane. And I think it's because he sees how successful it is that he thinks to himself, maybe that series that Sarah Jane was supposed to have back in mm. 1981, or whatever it was when K9 and Company was on, maybe we can actually have that now. I do wonder whether he worked backwards from the from the title School Reunion. He thought, oh yeah, I'm going to reunite <clears throat> the Doctor and Sarah Jane. Reunion. Oh, School Reunion. That's a good play on words. I know we can set it in a school. That might have been the way it worked. <laughs> You're right there, t- typing away. No, yeah, I just no, wanted I- to... I just... Uh, there's a... I don't make notes, but there's a note I wanted to make because when we get to Stephen Moffat, it's very important. And if I forget okay. it, I'll kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll kick myself. I won't actually kill myself. I'm not threatening suicide in the middle of this podcast, people. Don't worry. Uh, Look, um, let's whistle through these then because, yeah. um, you know, Russell T. Davis, there are some stories with children in central butts. Okay, Utopia. 
That's the mm. one where there's a Blue Peter competition to get the kid in, and the kid gets a small little role, and it's nice. It doesn't really mean anything. The next Doctor... Oh, I don't know. As far as a, being a parent, I thought that was quite horrible. The, oh, the, the connection between him and the um, Toclophane. Oh, yeah, but you don't find that out till afterwards. No, no. Uh, yes, that's, that, is that's, horrible, that, is an, that is an interesting issue. That is an interesting use of children, though, and I think it comes up later on that if it is a family show, you you are playing to the to a parent's sensibilities by using the children in a certain way. Well, Certainly yeah, putting them in. Peril. Well, this is the note I was just making to myself. Oh, okay, we'll come. Back I was going to bring it up in a few in a few minutes. Uh, next Doctor, same thing. You know, I'm trying to remember you. I I saw you'd written down the next doctor, and I was thinking, where are the children involved in the next doctor? Well, it's about Jackson Lake's son. Oh, of course it is. It's about Jackson it Lake trying to find his son, and because of what's happened to his son and the Cybermen, he loses his mind and thinks he's the doctor. Oh yes, yes. So you know, it's all God. It's so long since I've watched that. It really and so is. What it all comes down to is them stealing the children to make this machine. But mm. I mean, as much as I like the next doctor, it doesn't deal with that anywhere near as well as school reunion does and like i say i don't think school reunion treats that as well as the twin dilemma ought mm. to have if it had been the story it should have been so the next doctor again is kind of children in the background what's happening is kind of the idea is seeping into doctor who the people who make it and the people who watch it that as a family show with a particular appeal for children the idea of having children in the series is not quite as alien as it was in the classic series. And there are two, no, three, sorry, interesting examples during the Russell T. Davis years, aside from the Stephen Moffat ones, that are worth dwelling on just a little bit more. And, of course, one of those is Fear Her. Mm. I mean, as a story that is focused upon a child... I think the way the child is captured in the plot is brilliant. The plot doesn't... The story... It's like I always say. Does the story come out of the idea that you want a particular kind of a monster? Or does the monster come out of the fact that you want to tell a story about a particular thing? And Fear Her is a brilliant example of that. The writer wants to tell a story about a child's isolation and mm. loneliness and so the sort of subtext between the monster as it were which is mm. not really a monster but just an alien that doesn't comprehend and so does monstrous things th through misunderstanding what it's doing and the child in the story brilliant the, the fact that the story doesn't work is mostly i think to do with the olympics aspect yeah it is it is it's it's treated in an almost frivolous kind of way, it's almost there's almost too much emphasis on the, on the 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 stuff on the outskirts of the story. At the heart of the story, <clears throat> it's potentially one of the strongest stories that could have been. I mean, subject matter is incredibly important, incredibly. And then, right next to it, almost is the idiot's lantern, which does exactly the same thing. Child's slightly older in this one, but he's still essentially a child for the purpose yeah. of the story. Yeah. And again, it's like, and we've said this just recently because we did series two recently so uh, but on the one hand you have an interesting story about television being where the wire is kind of focusing its attention or else it's an interesting story about a young lad and his father and 
how they deal with the situation that's come up. But between the two stools, it's kind of lost itself again. Mm, yeah, yeah. Exactly like so. Fear Her. Focus both, of the, both of those that have kind of... I, I, when I remember those stories, I think of them both as real light, mm. light stories, real thin, paper thin. If you'd have and, got rid of the, the, the aspect of the child and his father in The Idiot's Lantern and concentrated on the 1950s television aspect... It would have been so much better. And if you'd have got rid of the Olympic stuff from Fear Her and concentrated on the child and her dilemma, it would have been so much better. But both of those stories suffer from the same thing. Trying to do too much and not giving enough attention to any one element. Now you you say that, um, did you ever, was it you that asked a question or somebody asked a question about what of the new series you'd like to see novelised? If they started doing Target Novel. And I think Fear Her would be amazing. Yeah, it could be. If you could get inside the heads of the characters and actually give them the proper emotional development and, you know, give some insight into the actions and what's going on, yeah, Mm. it could be a lot better. Mm. And actually, the Idiot's Lantern would be better for being fleshed out as well so that you could develop the themes. Right, those are those two stories in Series 2 where Mm. they try to bite off more than they can chew and fail miserably because they just don't have the time to tell the story and then in series three you get human nature where they actually give it two episodes and they do pretty much the same thing it's about you know it's got on one hand story about the aliens and the sort of jeopardy and then on the other hand you've got a story about children who are being prepared to fight for war and you give the story enough breathing space to allow us time to get into the psyche of these children and feel what it really must be like. And it is a thousand percent more successful. Mm, yeah. Well, the, yes. No, it is, it's such an affecting story on every level. It's the one instance in Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who where you actually get to see children on screen, you know, right at the very centre of the story as well, because... Unlike in, say, The Idiot's Lantern, where the boy and his relationship with his father are kind of a subplot, in human nature, the children and preparing for war, that's the A plot. That's the main thing that's happening. Those are the people we see the most of, other than, of course, the Doctor and his relationship with um, the teacher, Jessica Hines, Mm. the Mm. teacher, the nurse. And it's so beautifully judged because the the child the central child character he's not precocious he just he behaves like a normal child would using his own intelligence and and doing and and it's a right it's a right of passage story isn't it for him that he he does the the things that are needed to 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 save the day and um and at the end he, of it we get to see the end of his journey as well yeah i mean yeah. A lovely little epilogue at the end of the story yeah yeah now, the point I was going to make just before I start talking about Stephen Moffat and using children in Doctor Who is that Russell T. Davis, four and a half years, uh, whatever, and children have been used in Doctor Who because you can now use children in Doctor Who sparingly, perhaps, but you can mm. use them. But he has used them sparingly. It's almost a little bit like tokenism. I mean, it's not tokenism. It's not him saying, oh, we should have children in Doctor Who. Well, okay, I suppose let's put them in this. It's just a case of he doesn't necessarily think to put children in Doctor Who. And that's because Russell T. Davis 
I mean, I'm saying it's because I don't know what he's thinking. But my, my assumption would be Russell T. Davis doesn't have children, so doesn't necessarily think about the effect modern Doctor Who would have on a children's audience as much as Stephen Moffat does, who runs his stories by his kids before typing them up just to make sure <laughs> they're properly scary enough. Mm, yeah. Now, I, I'm not going to say that Stephen Moffat hasn't made mistakes. I think he's made plenty of mistakes, and some of them, some of those mistakes that he's made, have been in putting stuff in his Doctor Who that's not really suitable for children. Mm. But let's look at the three stories, not Blink. That's one that stands apart. Although, actually, Blink comes into it because of the story it was adapted from. Stephen Moffat's three, three sto- four stories during the Russell T. Davis years. The Empty Child. There mm. in the title, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Now, the child in The Empty Child is not a character in the way that the child in The Idiot's Lantern was, or Fear Her. We don't get to see the child, empathise with the child, see what it's thinking, see why it's had the emotional... Re- you know, the the response, f- the reason why the emotions are there that mm. cause that response. We don't get to see any of that stuff. But at the end of that stuff, what we do get to see is the resolution to the story. And what The Empty Child really is, is a story about being a parent. Mm. Mm. And, it's, and it's about bringing the parent and the child together at the end of the story. Mm. Yeah. Which is kind of a metaphor for what Doctor Who does. You know what uh, Tom Baker always said about Granny's bosoms? He said that's where kids love to be. <laughs> and, you know, he, he was the man responsible for putting them there. Mm. Empty child couldn't be a better metaphor for that. It's about putting the child back into the bosom of its parent. Mm, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. No matter how broken it is. No matter how broken the child might be, says that story, it's oh, it, you just don't give up. You don't. You never give up on a child. Mm-hmm. It's it's clever because well, obviously because it's multi-layered. Because that child works on, there's, it, it works on a Chucky level, and it works on the 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 creepy level, and it works on the emotional level as well. When you realise what it's all about, exactly. Um, and um well, I've forgotten what I was gonna say now, but it it's very, very <clears throat> the more you think about it, the more clever you realise it is. It um yeah, I've completely forgotten what I was gonna say. No, it's okay. <laughs> Look, the girl in the fireplace, we can yeah. kinda of skate past it except to say it, it's the introduction into Doctor Who of Stephen Moffat realising that the thing you really use to scare kids is their bedroom. The quote that we had at the start of this episode about mm, yeah. we're about to go to the scariest place in the universe, <clears throat> a child's bedroom. Stems. Monsters under the bed. I, that, that got mm. me in that story. That was probably the creepiest moment I thought, in, um, or a scariest moment for me in the new Doctor Who. And of course Stephen Moffat develops that, because then he has the sort of, uh, what's it called? Grandma's footsteps, the weeping angels. Then he has the shadows that eat you. He knows what scares children. Those are the things that scare children. And in The Girl in the Fireplace, in spite of the fact that the story doesn't really need a scene with a child in it, he Mm. starts with the scene with a child, after the opening title, starts with the scene with the child in order to throw that theme into Doctor Who. Mm. Maybe he didn't realise he was going to play with it quite so much afterwards, but he does, and it comes back time and again. 
during the three series he's done as showrunner. And then, of course, Silence in the Library. The Okay, Blink. We've got Blink in between. Blink is based on the annual story. And in the annual story, it's not a grown-up Sally Sparrow. It's a child Sally Sparrow. Mm, So there's Stephen Moffat appealing to children in the original story in that way. Silence in the Library is interesting because what it kind of does here, it sort of flips it on its head. I, I mean, in the stories that he's written so far up to this point, in The Empty Child, the child is the villain. In effect, certainly in the first of those two episodes, before we realise what's actually going on, mm. Silence in the Library pulls the same trick as that, but whereas in The Empty Child, it's something that's been done to the child that the child has no control over affecting after it's been done. The child mm. doesn't, the child can't realise that it's doing wrong because something that's been done to it takes away its ability to realise. In Mm. Silence in the Library, you've kind of got the... What you have is the mind of a child uh, downloaded into a computer. So, Mm. although it's not actually a child, but as realised on screen, you have the metaphor of seeing the child, which is in the computer programme. But the idea in there is that you have affected the child in such a negative way that the child does have control over what it does from that point onwards mm. but mm. doesn't realize doesn't it doesn't realize that it's doing wrong in a way in much the same re- way as the alien in fear her i was about to say yeah the, the two relate yeah absolutely mm. and then of course you come to the end of the story and uh, it's resolved and you know as is the case with If you're going to tell a story where you're going to have put a child at the centre of it and the child is deliberately doing morally wrong because it doesn't appreciate the difference, by the end of the story you you have to have given the child the comprehension of right and wrong, as it were. But we then move into Stephen Moffat's tenure as the showrunner and this is where the idea of children being the central characters in Doctor Who, the possibility of it, the ability to use them as central characters, are not always totally central, but really starts to take root. And like I say, I think this is by and large down to the fact that Stephen Moffat is a parent himself, and I think what he does with his tenure as the showrunner is write a Doctor Who that he would have found the most engaging version of the series that you could have had when he was a child Mm. and obviously runs it by his own children as well. Um, Well, we've got the 11th hour and we can't uh, talk about the 11th hour without talking about the Big Bang as well because they are the bookends to the series Mm. that kicks off with a little Amelia Pond. Yeah, and the big thing with her is that she is a three-dimensional character the same as any of the adult characters. Um, she's so successful, but, but basically because you, I certainly find myself accepting her. I mean, she was a great little actress anyway, and um, how clever to see a new doctor through a child's eyes. Yeah, that, yeah. And that that was the theme he kept coming back to all the way through, wasn't he? All, all the, the way through the, the Amy story, and then even when he regenerated, she was the one that came back. Um, and in fact, that's the perfect... And we saw perfect, her again as a child. Yeah, so. that's the perfect summation of what Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who is. He's 
and yeah, I keep coming back to perhaps another reason why some adults don't get along with this show as well as they got along with other versions of the show. But yeah, Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who is Doctor Who as seen through a child's eyes. Mm. And there you go. He's actually put it on screen and told you at the very start of his very first story as showrunner that that's what he's going to do. He's going to write Doctor Who through a child's eyes. Mm. The interesting thing is, obviously the Amelia Pond character is just an introduction into Amy Pond. But the interesting thing is that he thought that was worth doing. You know, mm. that he actually sat down and said, this is how we should introduce Amy Pond. And then, of course, the thing after that is, your very second story, also a Stephen Moffat script, The Beast Below, starts off with children again. Mm. By the end mm. of the story, the children aren't as central to the plot as they were, for example, in School Reunion, mm. maybe, and um, Fear Her, but it starts off with children again. It's, mm. uh, it's definitely a case of Stephen Moffat laying the groundwork for this version of Doctor Who that's going to be a version of Doctor Who that is, like all those other novels and stories and television programmes and films I mentioned, it... it he can't do it all the time, and he mm. doesn't do it all the time. And I think if he did do it all the time and have new children in each story every week, I think if he did it that often, it would pretty soon become tiring and very yeah. off-putting for a lot of the rest of the audience. But he doesn't ditch it straight away. A few weeks later, you've got The Hungry Earth. And for all that the, the adult characters in that one are the ones that we kind of remember... It's the child who brings us into the story. It's mm. the child who um, kind of first realises that the Silurians are among us. And it's the child who draws us in to what will become the A-plot by the end of the first episode. You start the first episode and you think it's about drilling and all this kind of thing. Really, it's about Silurians. And it's the child in that story that gets us there, that gets us to the Silurians. Mm. It, and, of course, there's that beautiful scene in there where... Matt Smith does the speech about, you know, the monsters. Mm. This is what I do. <laughs> That's a beautiful scene. Mm. And mm. it's kind of a great example, the Hungry Earth, of the kind of Doctor Who that we have had these last four years, where a child is at the centre of it, but not necessarily always the main participant in it. Mm. But it's kind of a metaphor for... I'll try and phrase this better because I don't think I phrased it very well there. It's kind of... Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who is kind of saying that the ch Doctor Who previously, like I've said, is a family show that must have an appeal for children. But what Stephen Moffat is essentially saying with these stories in his first series in charges, it's not going to be a family show that mainly appeals to children anymore. It's going to be a children's show that mainly appeals to families. Mm, yeah, the yeah. distinction's different. It's just slightly shifted. Yeah, it's it's ironic, isn't it? That the show spent so many years supposedly being a family show, but it only had two thirds of the family in it. Really? Yeah, but even more than that, it spent the first twenty six years plus four years, uh, five years with Russell T Davis of his existence ostensibly being a children's show but not quite being a children's show mm. and now Stephen Moffat is actually quite subtly I think 
But and I think these stories in series five are brilliant examples of it. He's made it into a children's show, but a children's show that genuinely does, to my mind, appeal mm. to the rest of the family as well. But he's kind of made it into something that it always was, but perhaps never kind of knew how to be, if you mm. see what I mean. Mm. Yeah, I think it's yeah, I think the format's learnt a lot from it. That that the children can be used well. Because usually they would stick out like a sore thumb. And then, of course, we get a Christmas carol. Yeah. Which is um, about, well, this is, uh, in some ways, just as uh, Love and Monsters is held to be a sort of analogy for Doctor Who fans, in that, you know, when Doctor Who fans meet up, go to the pub, talk about the programme, realise what each other's other interests are, and just become proper friends through being Doctor Who friends, you know, without wanting to sound patronising, but you know what I mean. Mm. And just as in that story, the character that Peter Kay played is kind of the bad egg who spoils it for everybody else, Mm. A Christmas Carol also kind of works as a metaphor for fandom in that... (laughs) And, you know, we're going to get into an area that might not be a happy area to get into, but let's do it. Why not? A lot of grown-up Doctor Who fans tend to be quite cynical about the series, even though they were, you know, much more forgiving of it, uh, much more engaged with it when they were children. You know, you grow up as a Doctor Who fan, you don't see the faults in the stories that you're growing up with that are just the same faults that you constantly pick out in the show when you're an adult. Yeah. By which I'm saying, you go from the innocence of the child and show how an innocent child, uncorrupted, can become a corrupted and cynical adult. And A Christmas Carol is a metaphor, not just for that journey, but also an analogy for trying to repair it. It's A Christmas Carol is almost a metaphorical appeal to fans to try and remember how they felt when they were eight when they first watched Doctor Who. Mm. Mm. I've never thought of that before. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I've never thought of that before either. I just saw that when I got to that as the next one on the list in this oh, list excellent. I've got here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's how I do this podcast. Uh, look. <laughs> winging it. <clears throat> exactly, winging it. Yeah, but I mean, it's because you sit down and you put the list in front of you that you start to think of these things. Mm. And you start to see these things. Mm. Um, right, we'll go through all the ones with children in fairly central roles, but the next one up is The Impossible Astronaut. Okay. Which kind of, it's not that radically important because, I mean, yes, in a way it is, because what you're doing with series six is you're telling the story of River Song. You know, the story of River Song doesn't start in Silence in the Library and it doesn't start in the stories that she appears in in series five. Those are teasers to the idea that one day you might tell the story of River Song. And I think Silence in the Library could easily have existed in a bubble on its own, and the story of River Song never been told. But if you are going to tell the story of River Song, you know, it, it, the telling of that story starts in The Impossible Astronaut. And although we don't actually probably see that at the time, but all the stuff with the child in The Impossible Astronaut, the child in the astronaut's costume, the child in the, um, I want to say hotel, it's not the word I want, um, you know, the place where Amy goes to look for the child. Yeah, yeah. Um, all that stuff is the start of the River Song story. 
And so it's not important in the impossible astronaut necessarily that it is a child, although by being a child, it kind of signals that it's the start of that story, mm. and it allows you, or should allow you, later on in the telling of that story, to empathise with the character more, knowing the child that the adult came from. Mm. Yeah. You see what I mean? It's, it's interesting, it just occurred to me, actually, the the idea that Amy people not empathizing with her she was quite a closed off quite a closed fish emotionally wasn't she very always on the defensive and always loud um, as well yeah a... um but she was essentially essentially an orphan from the moment we we met her so no she wonder was, yeah. she was a tough cookie and the same thing happens to river song yeah there is there's that repetition there which is quite clever mm and also the point I was just going to finish up with there, actually, is so although the child is not in, important necessarily in the story in The Impossible Astronaut, the child is important in that story in that that's the first chapter of the entire story that makes up Series 6. Mm. If you see And then following week, and yes, you're right about Amy Pond, she becomes an orphan in the 11th hour because the crack swallows her parents and all her memories of them go with it. Mm. So, yes, yeah, she is... So no wonder she's complicated. Yeah, and effectively, you know, that doesn't just make her an orphan from that point onwards. That makes her somebody who, to all intents and purposes, has always been an orphan because all her memories of growing up with her parents have disappeared as well. Yeah. Mm. But the next one we come to is The Curse of the Black Spot. I mean, I think we can pretty much skate past that. The pirate captain's child... It's fairly central in the story, but it's a fairly standard story, and it mm. doesn't really affect. It doesn't really affect what I'm trying to say with this podcast. I guess I'm no. trying to say. No, uh, it certainly doesn't occur to me as a story involving children at all. No, except of course there is a child who's quite central in it. Yeah, and it's quite central in it in that at the end of the story, these characters are reformed who might not necessarily have had the redemption without the element of the child being there although actually in the way the Tories the story's told we don't really get to see that because they're never they're never painted as particularly bad people in the first place mm, so yeah. it kind of shoots itself in a foot in the foot a bit there but in 45 minutes if you had gone from them being ridiculously evil to redeemed partly by the presence of this child, it would have seemed ridiculous. So I'm not unhappy with it the way it is. No. Although it does weaken it in terms of, you know, how that story would have been told in another medium other than the 45-minute Doctor Who. Mm. The next up is kind of kind of an interesting one. It's Night Terrors. Mm. Now, the thing that's kind of interesting about this is what, Grant Nock alludes to earlier mm. and we've said many a time Night Terrors is a remake of Fear Her but what Night Terrors does is it turns the ending of Fear Her on its head Yeah, yeah. Fear Her is about an alien who doesn't understand what's going on and the resolution to that story is not that you show the alien how to understand what's going on and to realise that it's doing wrong and to then put things back to rights. That was almost a sideshow, because at the end of Fear Her, the alien goes. Mm. The mm. plot wouldn't have been affected if you hadn't have had that 
sort of redemption in uh, inverted commas for the alien, but had just had the Doctor defeating the alien, it would have ended the same. The alien is gone at the end of the story and everything's put back to rights. What that story really needed to do was to show the redemption for the alien as the end point that the plot was aiming for. Mm, And that's what Night Terrors does do. This alien's come down and it's taken on the form of a normal human baby. Nobody can Mm. tell the difference. It's grown up into a young human boy. Nobody can tell the difference. It's doing all these alien things that nobody can understand. But the redemption at the end of Night Terrors is the alien realising its errors and putting things back to right because it by this time knows that that is the right thing to do. Mm. Mm. And that is, that is, and I don't think Night Terrors works particularly well for several other reasons, which are perhaps more to do with the production mm. or, or perhaps more to do with some of the more subtle things that should be in the script and perhaps aren't. But Grant said he didn't like the Love Conquers All ending but I think that's what's so brilliant about it. I think that ending is the ending that Fear Her needed to have. And I'll tell you why Fear Her also in another way doesn't work. Because it kind of has the Love Conquers All ending, but it feels it feels sentimental because it's hollow, because at the end of it the alien goes. So you have the Love Conquers All resolution without the sort of underlying reality of that ending. Do you know what I mean? And in yeah. Night Terrors, you do have that. So you can have that ending and get away with it because at the end of that story, everything is resolved in a way that brings the characters together to move forwards together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not letting you talk nearly enough, Simon. No, it's fine. I'm agreeing with everything. That's bad, isn't it? Um, no, I don't Night mind. Terrors, I, don't really, <laughs> I don't really find the Night Terrors ending convincing. I need to watch it again, I think. Um, I kind of understood what it was trying to do, but it it seemed quite rough, rushed at the end. Yeah, you're there probably was, right. I, it almost felt like the father was under pressure like to say, accept the child. I don't think Mark Gatiss writes with the nuance to pull it off. No, but I but think possibly the same situation as Russell T. Davis, though. He doesn't have children of his own, so he doesn't quite doesn't, get yeah. the connection. Whereas maybe Stephen Moffat does, and I think Stephen Moffat does it better. Yeah, And funnily enough, you've got the same thing coming up in the next story, uh, which ties very closely to this one in several ways. Um, yeah, I, Mark Gates perhaps doesn't have the nuance to pull off the ending of Night Terrors, but the idea for the ending of Night Terrors, I think, is the right way to go about it. Mm-hmm. And then in closing time, I've put closing time on this list only because of the inclusion of Stormageddon, and I don't think Stormageddon is really old enough to include in this podcast really because I'm talking about children characters in Doctor Who as aspirational figures for the children watching at home and Mm. obviously Stormageddon is not that but I have included it in the list and by sheer coincidence it does end in the same way as Night Terrors Mm. in that love conquers all and I think it works and again Gareth Roberts no children perhaps doesn't appreciate the nuance, and a lot of people do have a problem with the ending of Closing Time, and so maybe, again, that's why, because he hasn't been able to put that nuance into it. Although, again, I think the ending of Closing Time is successful because, like I said just now, if you're going to do that ending, Love Conquers All, you have to show it. It's it's a case of show and tell. 
Fear I her. think I think Gareth Roberts is far more successful mm. in that, and I think I think he I think he does get the nuance. Um, if you are a parent, and you know there is a love for your child that that does conquer all, I think I think he's hit that spot on. Yeah, I think where yeah. people doubt it is whether it would beat the Cybermen. I think that's well, the that's only what floor. I mean about the nuance. I mean, I to me it works. I think yeah. it works, but I don't think other people necessarily necessarily do. Obviously, we know lots of people don't because they tell us so all the time. <laughs> but the but the thing that works about it, I. I the, way, uh, the thing I was trying to say earlier is, it's a case of show and tell. If you're going to do a story, you have to show something rather than just telling it. And where mm. fear falls down is it tells it but doesn't show it because at the end of the story, they go their separate ways, the child and the alien. Mm. Night terrors and closing time is about the parent and the child being united. So it's a case of showing it rather than telling it. Mm. Mm. Um, next one in our list is Doctor the Widow in the Wardrobe. Uh, yeah. Well, this one's a little bit like um, what I mentioned before with the next Doctor. Mm. Although the children are quite central in the story, really it's about the parent than it is the children. It is. I mean, it's almost like the children are there because it is a play on the the line, the witch in the wardrobe, that there are children there. And in terms of the way the story unfolds, the children are the get the, the children are there to give the parent a target. Do you know what I mean? A goal. Yeah. And they don't... This is perhaps why The Doctor, The Widow and The Wardrobe doesn't work, because some of Stephen Moffat's other stories, and, you know, Amelia Pond is a primary example, some of Stephen Moffat's other stories really do get inside what it means to be a child in Doctor Who. Mm. Whereas The Doctor, The Widow and The Wardrobe, it's a little bit like Planet of the Dead. You know what I said doesn't work about Planet of the Dead is if you put a bus full of people on an alien planet, it needs mm. to be an it needs to be an ice cold in Alex in outer space where it's the characters are the most important thing. But mm. Russell T Davis forgets to bring his characters along to that story, and that's what lets it down. Mm. Stephen Moffat forgets to bring his children along to the Doctor, the Widow, and the Wardrobe, and that's probably what lets that down. And I don't mean in terms of it being a story, but I mean in terms of it being successful within the parameters that we're talking about in this podcast. Mm. It, do, it feels like the children are there as a token. Yes, and it only feels mm. like there's a connection between the wife and the husband, and not mm. between the children and the husband. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, mm. the, 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 five chi- really. the five children in it thing, you know, that manages it. Yeah, but they, that is kind of, I guess, realistic, because mm. I, not just because it was the war, but, you know... Years and years ago, often families would be where the patriarchal figure was at an emotional distance from the children. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. That's true. And so I think maybe it taps into that a little bit. I just don't think, I just don't think that story kind of sells that. Mm. Mm. And the story that comes after it as well, in terms of our list, is the Snowmen, which is obviously 12 months down the line, because Series 7 Part A, no children's stories in there. The Snowmen, uh, which also kind of has children at the heart of it. Mm. And although Moffat pulls off a couple of familiar tricks in the Snowmen, um, you know, particularly in the pre-titles bit, where we get to see the innocent child that becomes the cynical villain in the same way as we had it in A Christmas Carol, it's just there almost for the sake of it. Mm, mm. That is the story of 
uh, Clara. We do seem to see the children becoming victims quite a lot in the Moffat era, though. Mm. You know, there are children becoming, uh, being taken over and ruined. And and becoming the ones that are, uh, yeah, the victims, for want of a better word. Yes, yes, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And uh, yes, and I think that ties in with this whole Stephen Moffat thing of if you put the children under threat, you know, that that is in the same way as in all those classic stories that we talked about, not Doctor Who stories, things like, you know, the railway children and all those other stories. You know, it's the child you put in jeopardy because it's the child that the children watching or reading are going to feel the connection with. And yes, you put the children in jeopardy in your Stephen Moffat Doctor Who, and yes, that is what brings the children's audience in even more. I think it's probably true that the smaller children like Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who a lot more than small children like Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who. I think Russell T. Davis's Doctor Who appealed far more to people in their late teens and early twenties. Mm. And that wasn't just because they all thought David Tennant was hot. <laughs> that, yeah. And I think the reason why they thought David Tennant was hot possibly had quite a lot to do with the kind of stories that Russell T. Davis was telling, which was stories where they put him through the emotional ringer mm. and he came out of it you know, a slightly more healed person, but he became sort of an emo hero. Mm, mm. Whereas Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who is about putting the children in jeopardy, and de- and in spite of the fact that that's not what the classic series did, that is kind of taking Doctor Who back to his roots. Matt Smith's kind of a gift horse for him in that respect, isn't he? Because he does he actually sells have... He does, yeah, and he he has an absolutely brilliant connection with children. When you see yeah. him working with children, he's so good. When you consider his age, you know, a lot of us, I, I don't think I really connected with children until I was in my 30s. I didn't really get it. Um, But he just, he just, he's able to come down to the level, and it's lovely. It's kind of the Tom Baker effect, isn't it? Indeed it is. I'm going to have to make an apology at this point. Go on. I've just found out that my audacity's crashed. Oh, so my recording of this program, I'm I'm not going to sound as clean as I normally do, but okay. I do have a backup recording going, so you'll sound nice and clean, and I won't. Oh dear. <clears throat> so there you go. Halfway through the podcast, I'm making an apology for the fact that I sound a bit rough this week. Okay. <laughs> I don't normally apologise for it, so I don't know why I've bothered this week, but nevertheless. Um. Next up, uh, the Rings of Akaten. Hmm. I mean, we do have three more stories to talk about, and I think this is the last important one, to be honest. Mm. Uh, This is the one, you know, it's really ironic, because this is a story in Series 7, you know, the second half of Series 7, that probably works the least well, and yet this is the story. Um, Neil Cross, who comes in and writes it, he writes Hyde first, right? Mm. which is a bit like him writing a classic Doctor Who. It feels very classic Doctor Who. And because of that, on the strength of that, Stephen Moffat asked him to write The Rings of Akaten. And he kind of writes the story that is the absolute paradigm for Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who. Mm. has all the things in it that Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who kind of best embodies. And at the heart of that, there is the fact that it is a child character who is right at the centre of it, and it's about a journey in which, as you say, you put that child in jeopardy, and that child has 
kind of an emotional journey as well across the length of the story and at the end of the story the child becomes kind of elevated and is at the centre of things being put back to rights Mm. and yet somehow it really doesn't work and one of the possible I mean there are so many reasons why that story doesn't work but sometimes even if something's not working you're prepared to get on board with it if it's kind of appealing to you in some kind of underlying way if there's something about the story that is kind of making you want it to succeed, if you know what I mean. Mm. Sometimes you'll even cheer on the underdog because, not just because he's the underdog, but because there's something about the underdog that makes him appeal to you and makes you want him to do well. Mm. Rings of Akaten doesn't do that. And I think the reason why is because it is the embodiment of Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who, in a way. It's kind of... Too much. In the same way as you can't have a meal that's all dessert. Yeah, yeah. Without a main course. Um, This is not quite the analogy I really mean, but (laughs) I think you see what I mean. Rings of Akaten feels like such pure Stephen Moffat Doctor Who that it kind of doesn't have that extra quality that makes you think, okay, that's worth persevering with. Yeah, Yeah. It's almost like it's taken all the... It's almost like it's taken all the surface things that Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who does and kind of forgotten to put the substance in, which mm. is not true because I think the child's journey in it mm. does have substance. So mm. I'm not saying mm. the story itself doesn't have substance, but maybe what the story's about has no substance, which is why people end up not rooting for it. Mm. Mm. <clears throat> and, and plus the production as well. It just doesn't convince me because the production is... It's... It doesn't, mm. yeah. It feels, yeah, you're right, it feels surfacy. Mm. It doesn't I think it feel, does. Yeah, yeah, it's all, it's all custard and no. Except I don't think it crumble. is, I don't think it is insubstantial. I think it's just, I think somewhere along the lines, the, the substance in that story has kind of been shoved to the side a bit. Mm. It's yeah. an odd one, that one, but it, 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 it's a story that feels worse than it really is. Mm. It's actually really not a bad story. It's just there's just a quality in that story that makes it f- feel almost from the start like it's not working for some reason. I don't think you can really put your finger on, unless I have just happened to put my finger on it by accident. <laughs> um, but look, next up, and we've mm. been going for plenty long now. I had a feeling this one would be a long one, so there's two more to mention. But uh, it's the ones where we don't think there's anything to say. Oh, yeah, <laughs> maybe. Next up is Nightmare in Silver. I don't. Yeah. I think the only thing to say about that is Stephen uh, Stephen Moffat Neil Gaiman appears to throw the children into that story for no reason whatsoever. Mm. Finds nothing for them to do and gets to the end of the story, having given them neither a journey nor a reason to survive that journey. No. And so I think it fails in the sort of parameters of this episode of the podcast, in every imaginable way. You know, this is the only episode I watched specifically for this podcast. I watched oh, really? It last, yeah, I watched it last night to see if I, uh, just out of interest, really, to watch it, watch it again and see if it improves with time, and it doesn't really. I don't it really think it, doesn't. I don't think it's anything to do with the performances. I'm, and I can't even... The performances aren't great. Mm, mm. But I just think it's a really bad piece of writing for those characters to throw them into the story with no rhyme or reason whatsoever. 
Uh, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, do you know what? I think, and I felt it. You know, I was saying about the why don't you effect where I, I didn't like seeing some of the kids there being precocious and all that sort of thing. Mm. And, and this, I, I, I feel like the kids don't deserve to be on the TARDIS, especially that girl. The boy uh. kind of doesn't do anything. But the, and, of- I, and I think the authors maybe thought, Neil Gaiman's maybe thought, oh, she she gets her redemption at the end because she turns around and says, oh, it's all right, actually. But, you know, she's just thoroughly unlikable. People don't like Amy. My God, that girl at the age of, oh. Yeah. It's like <laughs> you know? there are two things there that are sort of thrown in as lip service, which is one that it's set in a fairground. So obviously, who do you take to a fairground children? Mm. Which is not important for the plot. It's just thrown in to give the reason to children, to give the children a reason to be there. The other thing being that apparently the Cybermen can only be sort of reanimated by a pure mind in the same way as we had in The Twin Dilemma and School Reunion. Except in those two stories, the story was about that. Or a, a certain portion of the plot was about that. In Nightmare in Silver, Nightmare in Silver, it just seems that that plot element is thrown in to give them an excuse to be there. He's mm. not put the children in because the plot demands it. He's put the plot in because the idea that you've already included children demands it. Mm. Do you know what it comes across to me is almost a satire on John and Gillian. <laughs> yeah, I see what you mean. But, but it is. Um, for, for the listeners who don't know who John and Gillian are, when, uh, was it TV Comic or was it TV 21? Yeah, yeah, yeah. TV Comic yeah, yeah. did the, the very day. early William Hartnell comic strip. Um, they, they couldn't gave... use any other characters from the TV show. They only had the rights to the Doctor himself. And so yeah. because of that, they had to go on. Just... Well, they gave the, the, the Doctor two more grandchildren called John and Gillian. And that, that, those characters carried on right the way through, right into the Patrick Troughton strip, mm. where they made them slightly older, I think. Um, and, yeah, yeah, that was obviously... It's kind of the Sarah Jane effect, where you've got more children involved and it's angled directly at children because they know it's purely children going to be watching. So it comes away from the family family angle. Um, but these, these, these two kids... It's almost like Harry Enfield doing a version of John and Gillian as to how they would be in this day. And, you know, the girl would be <laughs> mouthy and un- thoroughly unlikable. Um, and I don't know, the boy just doesn't do anything, does he, really? Um, and uh, you say they're just there, again, to be victims, mm-hmm. to get caught up and get into trouble. But they don't they don't actually do anything. They're just there and just happen to get cyberized. And they don't um, even need to be in the story because, um, I can't remember his name, begins with an H, the character they meet when they get to... Um, uh, uh, God, yeah, it's yeah. Gone You know, I mean, he, yeah. he's the one who... Um, the plot is affected by the fact that he gets taken over by this cyber intelligence. You know, he's the one who um, presses the plot buttons to get the Doctor involved. Yeah, the children just irrelevant by that time. Mm. And look, the very last thing I wanted to mention, and this is a, just a really tiny mention, is you get to the end of the Matt Smith era, and um, when we get to the time of the Doctor, when we get to um, the planet of Christmas, yeah, the first people we see are the adults, because they give us the plot points that we need, and then mm. the only character we really see after that is the child character, mm. and obviously the story's about something else, so we don't see a great deal of him, so it's not really worth dwelling on, but the the thing that is worth dwelling on a, 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 
about in terms of this story and in terms of what we've been saying for the last hour and a half is we see the Doctor from the perspective of that planet through the eyes of a child. Where we came in to the 11th Doctor's tenure, seeing the Doctor through a child's eyes, and the last person who's not one of the regulars who we see the Doctor through the eyes of as we go out the other end of Matt Smith's tenure Mm. is also a child. It bookends it nicely. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's it, Simon. We've done the children. Hey! (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) I honestly didn't... (laughs) I honestly didn't think we'd get much out of that. And I was amazed when you gave me the list of stories where children do have some kind of prevalence. I, I just, it hadn't even occurred to me. Not at all. But how many stories there would be or yeah. how much effect they had on the stories. Yeah. I honestly thought to myself, God, what have children got to do with Doctor Who? And actually, there you go. Yeah. Well, obviously, hugely. But I wasn't aware how much was going on on screen. And it actually turns out in the last few years quite a bit, and that's probably redressing the balance because if you ask me, it probably should always have been thus, but obviously, like I said at the start of the podcast, it's the logistics of being able to do a weekly television serial that sort of prohibits the ability to do it, and yet since Stephen Moffat has particularly has taken over, Russell T. Davis a little bit, but since Stephen Moffat's taken over, I think that's one of the many, many things that Stephen Moffat's looked at in terms of Doctor Who in the past and thought, that's not quite right. Let me see if I can try it. Do it right. My way, but perhaps also the right way. And I do, I don't know, maybe I just have an affinity for what he does, but I do think there are certain things the programme has done, not necessarily wrong in the past, but maybe just not been able to do in the past, that Stephen Moffat has said, OK, we can do that now, let's do do that now. Mm. And I just said do-do again, which Mark would have pointed out if he'd have been here. <laughs> anyway, mm. we should we should get on, because it's getting on, and we've been banging on for long enough. Mm. Mm. I think oh, it's, it's a good one. Are we doing season nine next week? I think we are, aren't we? Yeah. yeah. Cram some viewing. So that's the day of the Daleks up as far as the time monster. Yep. You've, uh, you've perhaps still got a couple of days before we record to get onto our Facebook page and get yeah, your votes I've, in on the thread. I've got to watch the mutants for the first time. Oh, really? Yeah, never seen it. Well, that'll be an interesting experience. I shan't spoil how interesting because we'll talk about <laughs> that next week. <laughs> Right, yes. okay then, next week, season nine. Okay. And hopefully a full complement of blue boxes. Yeah, that'd be a miracle, wouldn't it? Yeah. It's been, well, anyway. But anyway, thanks for uh, being here so I wasn't talking entirely to myself, even though I seem to have dominated this conversation almost to the exclusion of you being here at all, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, I guess that's just how it goes sometimes. Hey, it is, it is. Next week, season nine. Until then, I was JR. And I was Simon. And we will speak again soon.